Hi, folks. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. Today, searching for one in six million. In 2007, the writer Sarah Wildman found a cache of hidden letters sent to her grandfather, Carl. Carl was a doctor from Vienna who had settled in Massachusetts in late 1939. By the time Sarah found the letters, Carl was deceased. And those letters were written in German, and they came from a woman named Vali, who was not Sarah's grandmother. Some of the letters were exuberant. They overflow with emotion and yearning and love. Some were desperate. You see, those letters were sent from Europe in the early 1940s. Vali was a Jew caught in Nazi Germany. Who was this woman so attached to Carl Wildman? What were the circumstances under which she wrote? And what became of her? Those questions possessed Sarah Wildman, and so Sarah set out to find the answers. She traveled all over from Vienna to Israel to Ann Arbor in her search, and she tells the story of her journey and her discoveries in a new book. The book is called Paper Love, Searching for the Girl My Grandfather Left Behind. It'll be out next week, and we're delighted to have Sarah Wildman on our podcast today to talk about it. Sarah, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks for having me. How did you first come to know about Bali? You know, it actually started before I found that collection of letters. I found a folded note of the kind we used to pass in our pretext era. It was folded into fours, and in each quadrant was a selfie, if you will, of the 30s. And under each was a little caption, you know, I'll paraphrase, but basically, will Carl write to me today in the next one, you know, with a little help, hopeful look, uh, no letter, sad face, maybe tomorrow, hopeful face. And I showed this note with these little selfies to my grandmother, who at the time was still alive. And I said, who is this woman? And she said, it was dated May 1939. And she said, oh, that was your grandfather's true love. And to me, this was, you know, so tantalizing. And yet, what did you do with it? You know, I had nothing further about her. And I called my grandfather's sister, who was still alive at the time. And he said, and she said, they were students together at the University of Vienna Medical School. Vali had come from Czechoslovakia alone to study, and she was brilliant. And she had fallen desperately in love with him. He had first ignored her. And then one summer, he ran to Czechoslovakia to tell her he too loved her. And it was this whirlwind love affair. So up to that point, what did you know about your grandfather's life before and after he emigrated? So what we'd been told was that he'd had this mythical, spotless escape in some ways, right? I mean, this is what I grew up on, that Hitler invaded, but my grandfather already had his degree from the University of Vienna, which was huge, and that he got on lines immediately and was able to get himself, his sister, his brother-in-law, his nephew, and his mother out. And we were sort of told this was everyone and that they had done everything and they'd done it on time and perfectly. They got out in September of 38, so before Kristallnacht, that it had been, everything was sort of perfect. And in retrospect, of course, this was clearly a myth. I mean, we don't live in pockets of five, right? You know, it didn't include anyone else from the family. It didn't include any of his friends. It didn't include the world he lived in. All of that was lost, but we weren't, that wasn't something that we talked about. What we heard was he lived in Vienna. He loved the University of Vienna Medical School. It was the best medical education on the planet. Then Hitler invaded, and it was time to go, and they got out, and they got here, and he was a success. And in fact, the way you portray your grandfather to some extent is as this very heroic, larger-than-life bon vivant. 
He was. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, when I started looking into this and I asked people, did you, had you heard of Vali, for example? And people had. Her name sort of was on the margins of the consciousness of the previous generation and, and obviously his generation. But people said, well, you know, he was a charmer. Everyone loved him. He would sort of command a room. He had this Clintonian presence. You know, he would make you feel like you were the only person in the world. And he was incredibly literate. You know, he was of that world where, you know, he'd studied Greek and Latin and he spoke a million languages and he could fake it in a dozen more, you know, and he he was well-bred and, and he loved symphonies and operas, but he also just seemed to just live large and he loved life. Everything was herrlich, wonderful. You know, w- the world was a wonderful place and it just exploded with opportunity, and you had to embrace every day. Why were you so taken with Vali? Why did she have such a strong hold on you? There are two things, I think. I mean, one is her letters are so modern, right? I mean, there's something about the way she writes that feel like us. And this connects to the second piece, which is I've always been, or in my entire adult life, been sort of obsessed with the idea of what happened to all of us, you know, the regular people, not wealthy people, not big names, not art owners. You know, what happened to you and me, city dwellers, university students, medical students, doctors, people who were intelligent, intellectuals maybe, they were going about their lives and suddenly the apocalypse of the 20th century happened to them. And Vali suddenly was this narrator that sounded like me. And so it tapped into this kind of endless query or or concern I'd had my whole life. What would have happened to Sarah Wildman? What would have happened to her things? What would have happened to her life? And and how would she have lived if I had been then? And Vali weirdly started to feel like me. I mean, not in terms of her relationship to my grandfather, but but in terms of just how she lived. She was this modern woman. She was obsessed with her career. You know, she she was very, you know, she wasn't particularly religious, but she had a religiosity to her. But, you know, and she loved to read. She loved to walk. I mean, she just sounds like one of us. So as you said, Vali and your grandfather, Carl, they were students together. They had a relationship. And the letters, which you quote throughout the book and at length, they are so absorbing and they are filled with adoration and love. I'd love it if you could read a little bit of one of them just to give us a sense of her passion. Okay, so this letter is from July 6, 1940. My beloved only one, my boy. No, and I just want to preface this by saying that Liebling and mein Junge, it's, it, that is a very 1930s way of speaking when she writes. These are all written in German and translated. You will be with me in this world. This one sentence in your last letter stays with me all the time. Wherever I am, I can hear it, see it, and feel it always. When I'm doing what I've been doing all these days, when I'm dressing the children's wounds, when they call out to me at night, when I cannot go back to sleep afterwards, and when I'm sitting by the window sick with longing, always your words, you will be with me, are comfort and torture at the same time because of the question, when will I be with you? Please tell me, beloved, when? I do not know the answer, and the consulate has only a vague idea of one to two years, meaning an eternity unimaginable, inconceivable, equal to a hundred years to me, who must be with you within the shortest imaginable period of time right now and immediately. Now the third summer without you begins. Instead of going swimming or boating, hiking in the woods, and sharing all the beautiful things with you, as it should be, I'm sitting here, pounding insanely, madly, and full of sadness at the typewriter, and the summer is so beautiful this year. But there's so much else I need to tell you. What's so striking in that letter is the sense of longing and yearning and this just 
this great passion that she feels for Carl and for the world and for what cannot be. Mm-hmm. Um, what I wonder about, though, is when you went searching for her fate, you had these letters, dozens and dozens of letters, and you went on to pursue many different avenues to find out more about her, about what the day-to-day existence would have been, about what happened to her, about what happened to her mother. How did you take these tiny clues and get to the bigger clues? How? Tell us a little bit, how did sort of one index card catapult into kind of a whole archive? That's a good question. So there's several different paths, archival paths that I've followed. One was these archives in the far west of Germany called the International Tracing Service in Bad Arlson. And these archives were 17 miles of material that had been collected by the Allies as they crossed through town after town and liberated camp after camp. And they pulled together files and files and files of both work camps and concentration camps. And I had hoped that this would provide this huge, huge, huge amount for me. Um, and it did and it didn't. It had a very, very thin file on her. But her file there was connected to someone else's, a man named Hans Fabisch, who was 10 years her junior. And somehow, towards the very, very, very end of her time in Germany, she marries him. So it gives me these sort of tantalizing details. And it gave me one other thing, which was that it showed me that in the post-war material, there were something called tracing and documentation files. And at Arlson... So the Tracing and Documentation Service was created at the end of the war when Europe was a total chaos. And the only way to search was to literally write a letter to the Red Cross and ask for you know information about someone. Um, and what that translated into, and something that was so tactile there, was an entire NATO driving school filled with piles of paper of people requesting information about their loved ones. And in those piles was a request for Vali. Someone else had come looking for her in the 50s, and it wasn't my grandfather. So I had these two tantalizing leads. We know what to do with that. But because I knew someone had come looking for her, I knew that meant there might be other archives. She was born in a town that then called Trapau, which is now called Opava. At the time, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and it was German-speaking, the center of the town was. And her mother, it turns out, was a divorcee, who was only married for one year, the year that Vali was born, and then raised her alone from 1912 on and had a successful business. And so I already started to be able to imagine the fact that here was this incredibly successful woman who had created an incredibly successful daughter who then goes off to the best medical school in the world alone. And in the archives in Opava, the town that they were from, I was able to find the organization papers that stripped them of everything they owned. So it began with their Nazi unraveling there. And then in Berlin, I was able to get the materials that showed me, you know, the path that Vali was taking. So she moves from Vienna to Trapau to get to her mother. And I believe that she went back to Czechoslovakia after Anschluss in March 1938 because Czechoslovakia was free. And they didn't couldn't have known Trapa was part of Sudetenland and would be handed to Hitler just a few months later. And exactly that moment, she realizes she's made a mistake. And she moves, to me, counterintuitively, to Berlin. But what people told me as I sort of followed her path backwards was that Trapau, even though it was a big, small town, everyone knew who you were and the anti-Semitism was off the wall. It was impossible to be a Jew in these towns in the fall of 38. And at Kristallnacht, they were very, very aggressive. They just, everything burned. And Jews felt hunted. And to move to Berlin, which still felt sophisticated, where people weren't necessarily overtly anti-Semitic in the street, where you could be anonymous. Remember, we're still many years from wearing the star. 
And she thought she'd have an opportunity to practice medicine. And she's hired by something, she mentions in her letter, she's hired by something called the kindergarten seminar. And so what I did, so these, what happened would be, I would see a little clue like that. And then I found the one person who wrote a PhD dissertation on the kindergarten seminar and the women of the last possible school for Jewish girls in Berlin. But as she starts, as life starts to constrict and constrict and constrict, she then goes to work for the Jewish hospital and she floats through the city. And with her little clues, I then went and tried to unpack for you what happens at each place. What, hap- what did it mean to work for the kindergarten seminar? What did it mean to work for the Jewish hospital? What did it mean to be a woman alone who was not a Berliner in Berlin at that time? And what I did was I matched it up against a list of restrictions for Berlin specifically. Um, and I mixed that in with contemporary accounts from people who escaped or who gave testimony right after the war. And I tried to braid all those things together for you so that you get a sense of her letter in in her world. Yes. And I think that you were very successful in doing that. I mean, the sense of her world shrinking and the encroaching claustrophobia is so vivid. Uh, and it was shocking. And some of these things, of course, are familiar uh, to anybody who's ever read anything about the Holocaust. There were some uh, rules that I had no idea about, which you introduced, like that every Jewish person had to suddenly adopt the middle name uh, Sarah if they were a woman or Israel if they were a man. And when I read that, it seemed so you know, it sort of caught me off guard since my name is Sarah to be so marked. Oh, Sarah, of course she's Jewish. And I wonder for you, uh, what was your reaction when you came upon that particular? That rule I had known. But for me, the rules that were amazing were, you know, starting in, I think, 1940, you were not allowed to buy new clothes or new shoes. And by the and then in 41, you were no longer allowed to resole your shoes. And that by the spring of 41, you have been stripped of the right to buy meat and legumes and eggs. And you get to the point where the restrictions are so enormous, where the things you're not allowed to eat are so huge, you can't imagine what they're eating. I mean, for Vali, Berlin is only a time of restriction that gets worse and worse and worse. But I think what's interesting to me is that it's all before the star. And then the star comes on, and then that becomes obviously harder because then you're marked in the street. But before that time, you, your the vise was tightening, 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 tightening. I want to get back for a moment to uh, to Vali and her letters. Uh, do you think that she was always in love with Carl up to the time that the letters stop in 1942, or does he represent simply to her uh, her best hope for salvation? And this is a debate or a question that you wrestle with throughout the book. I wonder where you've landed. I think it's really difficult to say. I mean, I do think that she she vacillates between feeling like he's her only lifeline. He is her link to the real world when she lives literally in a nightmare. And it's hard to say what's love and what's please just rescue me and and how it's all gotten very, very tied up in her mind, her loneliness and her despair. And I don't know that she's able to separate out for herself. I mean, she sounds so lovelorn at various points. And it sounds to me, you know, everyone has obsessed over like a, a love affair that has gone wrong. And, and she sounds like that at points. But at points, she she begs him because she needs some constant in her life. She needs to know there is a possibility beyond beyond this. And I think he comes to represent that light in some way. So he's getting these letters from her and actually from other people in her circle begging him to get her out of Europe. Why didn't he? So it's a great question. First of all, one of the archival paths I took, which was 
not where I thought I'd go at all was in the U.S. The University of Minnesota Immigration Research Center has a collection from something, this tiny little organization that no one has ever heard of called the National Committee for the Resettlement of Foreign Physicians. And in the original collection of letters, I found hundreds of checks, canceled checks, in tiny amounts, $45, $24, $44. And it turned out that my grandfather arrived completely impoverished. So this idea that we had been given that he was this instant success was sort of true, but it took a couple of years for him to become that success. He was he had no money. He had nothing. He could barely feed himself. He could barely take care of his mother. His mother was in her 70s. She was quite she was 46 when she had him. Um and so he's has nothing to basically live on, let alone to send someone for visa money. So there's that. The you know, there's the big piece which is that in 1940, he gets a letter from this rabbi named Alfred Jospi, um, who begs him to get these women, Vali and her mother, uh, visas for Chile. And he says they're only $150 apiece. Um, and at this point, my grandfather's applying for loans in the amounts of $45. He is barely scraping by. And what I also tried to do, and, and I do this throughout the book, is show you that where the State Department was at this point. Because even if he'd had the money, by the following year, the State Department had thrown up so many obstacles that it was almost impossible for any any Jews left within the Reich to get out because they didn't want Jews to get out. And for me, one of the most tragic moments is that in the spring of 41, they seem to have everything in order. They have affidavits in order. They seem to have their visas I assume her quota number had finally come up, and she says, all I need is a ticket. And the ships are sold out through February of 42, and on October, they shut off legal immigration. So she has everything, everything, everything in order, and then legal immigration is shut off anyway. Okay, so Carl couldn't help Volley in terms of actually getting out the paperwork and the bureaucracy, but the other thing that she was begging him for was just to reply to her letters. What do you make of the fact that there seem to be so infrequent replies? Oh, for me, this is the hardest piece. You know, of course, I want him to be perfect. You know, I think he was flailing and he had been this hero to her, the hero he sort of became to the family. I think he was having such a hard time here. He didn't know what to say. I think he couldn't handle the fact that he couldn't help her. Um and I think that he was being inundated. I mean, one of the things we haven't touched on is that this box is filled with requests. She is one of many of his friends. Now, she may have meant the most to him, but he is getting requests for money and affidavits from dozens of friends and family members, including his half-brother and his whole family. And he couldn't help any of them. And I think he put on some kind of blinders because he couldn't deal with it on some level. There's so much you came to know about what happened to Vali and her world, and there's so much still that you don't know, that no one can know. I wonder, what was the greatest revelation that you were able to come upon in this research? I think that there were, I mean, it took me some years, but what I finally did was I finally decided to try to figure out who was that person who went in search of Vali 25 years before I was born, and who was the person she'd married? And were those clues as to whether she'd survived or what her experience was? I mean, her letters to my grandfather stop in December 41 when we enter the war. 
and I had no way to penetrate what had happened to her after that. And that was to me killing me. You know, what, what happened? What happened? I had her name on a uh, deportation list, but I had nothing further than that. The person who had come looking for her name was Ilsa Meyer. And she had a, a London address, uh, but she had no digital footprint. You know, she didn't exist in Google. She didn't exist in any of the databases that I had been using, Yad Vashem, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. But then I went back to the way people searched after the war. People posted classified ads. You know, these were Sarah Wildman, formerly of Braslau, a survivor of Dachau, last saw her brother at, you know, this point in this roundup, now living in Brussels, please reach out, you know. And there was a smaller version of this called the Association of Jewish Refugees Journal, and that was just for the UK. And because this woman wrote from London, I posted an ad there with everything I knew. And one thing I knew was that she had three children. For some reason, she lists this at some point. She doesn't list their names, but she says she has three children, one born in 39, one born in 44, one born in 46. And a friend of mine who's a historian in Vienna said, even if she's not alive, they likely are. So I posted everything I knew, that she'd come looking for Vali, that Vali had married sometime very, very, very late in 42, early 43, um, and she had come looking for them. And then I forgot about it because I thought, this will come to nothing. And a couple months later, I went to London for a conference, something totally different. And I begged this conference to let me stay over a Saturday night and not just be in the conference room. And I went to the Tate with a historian named Jean-Marc Dreyfus, who has been a mentor and a prodder of this project for many years. And in between the Tate and dinner, I checked my email, and I get an email from this woman saying, imagine my overwhelming emotion. I am the one born in 46. You're looking for my mother. I don't know if you're ever in London. And I I, I said, I'm here until 4 o'clock tomorrow. <laughs> you know, you have to... Can you meet me? She hadn't put in a phone number or anything. She did. I, call me something, anything. I, I listed every phone number I could list. And she comes the next day, and we're both crying. And she says, I think I have something for you. And she pulls out of her bag a letter written by a survivor, which gives me almost everything I'm missing. And she gives me the clues to finding out the whole rest of their stories. And that at the very end of her letters and, and in this time when Vali is so alone in this terrible city that someone fell in love with her and wanted to take care of her. And in this city where the only way to survive was to have a network that he introduced her to a network of young people. And that, I don't want to unravel the whole rest of the story for you, but she gave me this incredible gift. Sarah, is there anything that you still want to know about Vali? In some ways, everything. You know, I, I, for me, what was so hard was I wanted I wanted everything about her. And an archivist said to me at the very beginning of this process, you know, there is no one document that you know tracks one person's life. I I want to know what she was thinking at the end. Um, in some ways, I just wish. I mean, I I just wish I could speak to her. Sarah Wildman, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Sarah Wildman is the author of Paper Love, Searching for the Girl My Grandfather Left Behind. It's out next week from Riverhead Books, but you can pre-order your copy now, and I definitely suggest you do it. It's riveting, and it's provocative, and it's important. Podcast listeners, you know what we would love besides you to order that book? We want you to write a review of Vox Tablet on iTunes. Those reviews help us get more listeners, and that's what we want, so please go for it. 
Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. We thank you so much for joining us this week, and we thank you for joining us every week. <laughs>